0: You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Once again, I'd like to say a big thank you to those who were here yesterday helping with spring cleaning. I know Blair already said thank you, but uh, thank you again, and a big thank you as well to our wonderful custodian, Chantel, for organizing it, and of course, for everything she does each week to keep this place looking clean and tidy for us. The topic of cleaning, though, also gives us a, a perfect segue into our message this morning because as we continue our sermon series through the Minor Prophets, which we've titled Major in the Minors. And uh, as we dig into the prophet Joel, the book of the prophet Joel this morning, what we'll find is that God's people had just experienced a great desolation and needed to be cleaned up, as it were, or renewed. Not just physically or, or nationally, but spiritually. They needed a renewal of the heart. And this is God's future promise to them even as they turn back to him in repentance. Uh, so, we're going to go through that this morning, and uh, first, as, as we usually do as we go through the minor prophets, we start with verse 1, because it tells us uh, who the prophet is, and, and usually who he's speaking to, and all, the, all those wonderful things. But this one doesn't do that so much. But we're going to go through it anyway. Joel 1, verse 1, says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel." So, that's all we know about Joel. Not much is known about the prophet Joel except that he was the son of Pethuel, which doesn't help us out at all. Actually, we don't know who Pethuel is. They—they uh, they probably did when they were the, the ones hearing this for the first time, but we don't know, so um, it doesn't really help. Uh, you know, we don't really know where Joel came from, or what timeline this is, or anything like that, though from the clues found in the book, we can at least surmise or guess that Joel was prophesying sometime before the Babylonian exile, most likely in the 8th or ninth century, maybe in the 7th century, um, which would make him one of the first, if not the first, of the minor prophets. But again, even that isn't fully known. What we do know is that the name Joel itself means Yahweh is God. And this is significant because Israel and, and Judah had become very pagan and, and poly- or polytheistic cultures in which, in which the many gods were worshipped and, and some of them were worshipped as the top god, whether there was Baal or El or whoever. So Joel's name in and of itself is a reminder that there's only one god and that there's no other god besides Yahweh the Lord. And of course, as a prophet of God, he proclaims the word of God here to God's people in Judah, using what seems to be a recent swarming locust plague, which had come upon them to foreshadow and, and warn God's people of an even more devastatingly great day, which was coming upon them, which he calls the day of the Lord. So two years ago, part of my neighborhood on the, on the west side had become infested with hordes of grasshoppers. It was nasty how many, did you hear that? It made the news. It was like provincial news, uh, maybe national news. I don't know. Uh, it was gross. They were everywhere. Thousands of grasshoppers had, had taken over lawns and destroyed nearby crops. Uh, fortunately, only a few of those grasshoppers made their way to our property. We were a little bit more removed from that situation. Uh, thank goodness. Um, but as gross as that was, just imagine that, just grasshoppers, thousands of grasshoppers in your yard. Nasty, right? As gross as that was, that is nothing, nothing compared to the devastation that a swarm of locusts brings. You can Google that. I didn't, I'm not, I didn't want to show you any pictures. It's crazy. They, they leave, when they come, when the swarm of locusts comes, they leave nothing behind. They, they, they black out the sun as they swarm. They bring complete desolation and devastation to crops and trees, and when they're done with that, they, they eat every other kind of plant, and what's worse, um, they start eating each other, and then when, when they're done doing that, they, they, while they're doing that, sorry, they also plant eggs, and it's really creepy. They're like all in a row. It's, like, it's gross, okay? It's like science fiction. In 1915, John D. Whiting, a researcher for the National Geographic, he was, he was researching some locust eggs in the state of Israel in order to see if, if he could something could be done to stop them from hatching or at least stop the locusts from swarming, because it was obviously about to happen, uh, when an elderly man came up to him and said, all this is no use. Go home and rest. You can do nothing. Once they fly, they will destroy everything. And of course, being a you know, National Geographic researcher and scientist, Whiting walked away unconvinced until the day the locust hatched and flew. And on that day, he found that he and no one else could do anything about it. The locust swarm in 1915 destroyed and devastated Israel, their crops, everything. And in his writing about it, he later described... Described it using language from the book of Joel, how horrible it was. And as we read in Joel, in the first chapter of Joel, we see that the locusts ate and consumed everything in that time as well. They're, they're, they're actually described as this nation with that comes towards them with, with lion's teeth, devouring the vine and fig tree. And when they're done with that, they even strip off the bark of the trees. Destroying the grain and wheat fields, making the ground barren and dried up, all is laid to waste, leads to a huge drought. Joel 1.10 specifically says, The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. So obviously, economically, this is really bad, right? Their food and their livelihood have been destroyed. But the mention of the grain, wine, and oil also carries deep and significant religious symbolism for them because this is what the Israelites were commanded in Deuteronomy 14 to give as an offering at the temple of the Lord in order to acknowledge that these provisions were blessings from the Lord, and, and more importantly, that they were given to them as a means to keep covenant with God. And furthermore, the, the psalmist writes in Psalm 104, 14-15, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. And so we see that the grain, the wine, and the oil, their blessings which God had provided for them from the land to bring them joy and strength and radiance and for them to give as an offering before the Lord. But now Joel writes that to their shame... These offerings had been cut off from the house of the Lord, which means that while their source of, of physical nourishment had been devastated, the, the deeper issue at play here seems to be that their relationship with God had gone dry. The physical drought left by the locusts was really only a demonstration or, or cause of their spiritual drought. And while Joel never gives a specific reason for, for their sin or whatever it is they had done, he, he doesn't really have to. Bottom line is that the people of Judah had turned from the Lord and from their covenant with him, and in rejecting him, they'd also lost what the Lord provides grain, wine, and oil. For them, these things were the necessities of life, but they rejected the one who provides it. And that's really the message. Right? When, when, when we turn from God and from his covenant with us, we're also rejecting and turning away from that which he provides, true life. Instead, we embrace death, we embrace desolation. Again, the, the fallout of the locust plague was really only a manifestation of what was going on in their hearts. But more than that, Joel proclaims that the locust desolation was also a, a prophetic sign and living metaphor of an even greater devastation that was to come. Again, that the day of the Lord, he writes. And because of this, because this day of the Lord is coming, he calls them to repent and to lament in sackcloth and ashes. Which means this day of the Lord must be pretty intense. So we have to ask, what what is it? What is this day of the Lord? And you may have noticed through our sermon series, through the minor prophets, that this is a phrase which which comes up repeatedly. It comes up a lot in the prophets, and which also means we can surmise that the idea of this day of the Lord was common to God's people as well. In in the book of Amos, it it, it seems to imply that the the Israelites had viewed the day of the Lord as this day that that God would come to redeem them while also bringing judgment down on all the surrounding nations for their evil and wickedness. They're close, but Amos quickly corrects them, though, saying that they shouldn't be so quick to look forward to that day either since they don't get a free pass on judgment just because they're descendants of Abraham. No, they'll also be judged by the Lord for their deeds on that day. Amos 5.18 says, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. He's saying, be careful what you wish for, right? Joel uses the same imagery when he writes in Joel 1.15, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. So it's pretty intense. Joel 2, 1-2 to and 10-11, to it says, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains. A great and powerful people. Their like has never been before nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. And in 10 and 11, it says, The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? The day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So what we can surmise from these passages is that the day of the Lord is, is, is really any moment by which God intervenes in history, directly or indirectly, bringing judgment upon sin and evil. One moment in particular that Joel seems to allude to here in chapter 2, as do many other prophets, is and we've talked about this before, is when God eventually sends the Babylonian army who who are also likened to the army of locusts here to desolate Jerusalem and to bring the people of Judah into exile as a result of their sin and idolatry. But it's not totally clear if that's what he's referencing in that moment. What is clear is that the day of the Lord is coming upon them. It can't be stopped and no one can injure it. All sin, all pride, all idolatry, all corruption, all injustice, all evil, all of it will be brought to nothing. It's a day of reckoning. It's a day of reckoning. Ultimately, though, we also need to understand that each and every day of the Lord in in history is all just a taste or foreshadow of what's to come in full. It's all leading up to that future and ultimate day of the Lord when Jesus Christ comes again in glory to bring final judgment upon the earth. He'll judge the world in righteousness, removing sin and evil once and for all in order to make all things new. About this, it says in, in 2 Peter 3:10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. And of course in Revelation it speaks of that same darkness, earthquakes, falling stars and gloom that Joel refers to. Which will come over the land at that time as well. Revelation 6, 12 to 13. says, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And so we see this as pointing to the eschatological time when Jesus comes again at the end on that day of the Lord. But it's also on this day which, which Joel writes in chapter 3 that, that people from every nation will be drawn together together in the valley of Jehoshaphat to be judged by their deeds. He calls this the valley of decision. We just sang about it in the song, Only You. He calls this the valley of decision. I don't know about you, but if you've ever heard pastors preach on the valley of decision, you've probably heard it as a way for pastors to encourage you to make a decision to follow Jesus, right? It's usually how it goes. That's certainly a good message. Obviously, that's, that's what we want to see is people make a decision to follow Jesus because he is life. But that's not what this particular passage means. In this context, the one making the decision in the valley of decision on the day of the Lord is the Lord. He's the judge. He decides. Our, our time is up at that point. But on that day, every knee will bow. Everyone will acknowledge that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. The question is, on that day, will you be bowing willingly or not? And for those who are bowing willingly on that day, it will actually be a good day. And not one to fear. Why? Because it's not only a day of reckoning, thank God. It's also a day of restoration. Since the whole purpose of removing evil is so that the Lord can renew the world. As Mark Sayers writes in his book, Reappearing Church, God's whole business is renewal. To renew Is also to bring fresh life to something that is exhausted or degenerate. The story of the Bible after the disobedience of humans is one of renewal. So the question is in that valley of decision, is which part of the story will you be part of? The reckoning or the renewal? Obviously, the renewal would be preferable. And and this is the plea of the, the prophet Joel to the people of Judah. This is why he's calling them to repentance, which means to turn back to the Lord. He's calling them to come back to the Lord and receive once again the necessities of life, the grain, the wine, and the oil. For the day of the Lord is coming. It can't be stopped and no one can endure it. That is, unless the Lord is on their side. And so he calls them on behalf of the Lord to repent, saying in Joel 2, 12 to 17, "'Yet even now,' declares the Lord, "'Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster.'" Who knows? Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? A grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Rend your hearts. Rend your hearts and not your garments, it says. In other words, he's calling them to honest and true repentance, not, not this outward show of apology. It's like, it's like when I get my sons to apologize to each other or to their mom. I know when they don't mean it, right? I can tell when they're saying it just so they don't have to be in trouble anymore. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, that was heartfelt. God's not looking for that. He's not looking for lip service. He's never looking for lip service. He's never looking for this outward religious show or work. No, he's looking for honest, humble repentance. A broken and a contrite heart. Where people are truly weeping and and mourning over their sin and idolatry. Where people's hearts are truly torn in two for what they've done. And then, who knows, he writes. Who knows, if if they do that, maybe God will relent and renew their land. That's the same words the king of Nineveh used in Jonah. Who knows, maybe God will restore and forgive. And by saying who knows, what, what, what he means is that God doesn't need to forgive. He's not required to, right? Which is is why we can't, as it says in Romans, presume upon his grace and, and go ahead and sin whenever we want, just thinking God will just forgive us anyway. It's a free pass. No. But even so, maybe, just maybe, who knows, if they repent, maybe God will forgive them and restore them. Not only because the Lord wouldn't want other nations to start thinking he was powerless to uphold his people, but also because, as Joel writes, it's who God is. Quoting Exodus 34, and and just like Jonah did, but he did it because he was mad, he says, Turn to him, repent. Because, why? Because God is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and he relents over disaster. That's who God is and he cannot deny himself. He doesn't have to forgive, but he does. He does. And of course, Joel foresees that this is how God will respond to their repentance with grace and mercy. In Joel 2, 18 to 19 and 24 to 27, it says, then the Lord became jealous For his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. The threshing floors shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. be put to shame. What a promise. God's response to their repentance is to bring renewal on the day of the Lord, to leave behind for them the necessities for life and covenant with him, an abundance of grain that satisfies, new wine that brings rejoicing, and oil to make them radiant, all so that they will never have to live in shame again in relationship with him. And I hope you can see where this is going as well, what it's pointing to. Because the offering of grain and wine clearly points us to the bread of life and the new wine, to the only one who restores us, completely satisfies, and gives us new life with God. It's Jesus Christ. John 6, 54 to 57, Jesus says about himself, he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. So how will God respond to the repentant hearts of his people and and bring them into a place of refreshing and renewal to abundant life with God? Through Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of that promise, who himself tells us that he's the bread of life, and that he's also the grain which dies so that it can bear much fruit. Not only that, but the wine represents his blood, he tells us, which is the true drink, because it was shed for us on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, inviting us into that eternal life under a new covenant with God. Jesus is the grain and wine offering given by God to give us life, renew our hearts, and satisfy us completely. And so that on the day of the Lord we'll we'll no longer be judged for our own sin, but rather justified in his name and by his blood no longer under condemnation or living under the weight of our shame because Jesus already took it upon himself. So through him, we're invited into an eternity of restoration and peace in the presence of God. In Romans ten eleven, it quotes this passage in Joel proclaiming about Jesus. It says, as scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. And about this, Theologian Peter Hoidema writes, In the valley of decision, God has declared us innocent. Jesus was judged in our place. Again, Jesus is the grain and wine offering who gives us salvation, righteousness, and renewal. But you might be thinking, okay, that explains the grain and the wine. But what about the oil that God has promised well, as you may or may not know, throughout the Bible, oil is used to anoint God's chosen people to make them holy, and is also often used in reference to the anointing of the Holy Spirit. In fact, this is the reason we chose today of, of all days to preach on the prophet Joel. We were saving it for today, because today, of course, is the day of Pentecost when the Spirit fell on all Christ's disciples and, began, and they began to speak in the tongues of all the nations of the world, signifying to us the truth of the gospel, that the, God, that, that the gospel and the Holy Spirit was for all people and for all languages, Jew and Gentile alike, or as Peter proclaims, those near and those far off. That moment was, was the foretaste, the beginning of the fulfillment of what's to come in full on that day, that God's presence will dwell with his people. And Joel prophesies this next. Joel 2, 28-32. It says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. So God's, God's plan for renewal was always to make a way of salvation through Christ and to fill and empower that rescued people, the remnant, with his spirit as we approach the day of the Lord. And on the day of Pentecost, we see that as, as all of Christ's disciples were filled with the spirit and as they began to speak in tongues, some of the people who were witnessing it thought they were drunk. Well, they just babbling. But Peter stepped up and proclaimed in his first sermon ever that no, they weren't drunk, but that this was a sign that the prophecy of Joel was beginning to be fulfilled. He quotes Joel in his sermon, actually. And he says that because Jesus Christ had died for sin and had conquered death by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus now reigns at the right hand of God where he can now pour out that same Spirit of God on all who believe in his name by faith. And then it says in Acts 2, 37 to 41. And when when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit In this passage, we see the same plea from Peter to his audience as Joel does to the people of Judea. What does he call them to do? Repent. This is the road to salvation in Christ and being filled by his spirit. It starts with repentance. Repentance. Turning back to Jesus in humility and brokenness. Rending our hearts so they can be repaired and made new by him. Emptying ourselves through confession so we can be filled by his spirit. Again, Mark Sayers writes, repentance and and renewal are inseparable companions. Renewal happens when we get to the end of ourselves. Renewal comes when we are sickened by our false gods and the broken promises of our impotent idols and ideologies. When we are shattered by our striving and pathetic attempts at saving ourselves, we fall into the arms of Christ to be remade. Exhausted and emptied, we can be filled by him. I strongly believe that we are approaching a time of renewal in the church, a much-needed time of renewal in the church as we approach the day of the Lord. But as we're reminded in Joel, again, this day of the Lord also brings reckoning. And so again, in the valley of decision, which way will your story go? That's a warning for us. It's a call for repentance. And it's quite obvious that our post-Christian Western culture, which we live in, has been infested by the ideologies of idolatry, individualism, pride, sexual immorality, corruption, hedonism, and the list goes on. And too often, too often we as believers, we get sucked into it. We get sucked into believing the the empty and deceitful promises which the world offers to us, and we bow down to them. No one is innocent of this. And so, who can endure? No one. And we can see if, if we open our eyes. That this culture we've been sucked into is a culture of sin and lies. Of emptiness. Dissatisfaction. Depression. Brokenness. Hopelessness. Identity crises. Anxiety and anger. The stats are all there. What the world promises and what we ingest every day on our screens or in our selfish pursuit of happiness That's the opposite of renewal. We're being sucked dry. We're being given to drought like the rest of the world. As Peter writes, we need salvation from this crooked generation. We need God's presence to restore us. We need, as Joel writes, the latter rain. We need Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit. We need renewal. And once again, this message in Joel reminds us that God's promise of redemption calls us to repent. To turn away from the things of the world which bring death and to come back to the Lord because he is the source of life. We need to fall on our knees at the foot of the cross with weeping and with fasting and with confession of sin. Contending with broken hearts and prayerful pleas to know by the name of Jesus the abundance and eternal satisfaction of his word. And the refreshing of his wine and the anointing of his Holy Spirit which brings the new rain. And also empowers us to bring this state of renewal into the world. And on that note, the the filling of the Holy Spirit isn't some some experiential moment that we have. No, the, the Holy Spirit comes upon us and within us to sanctify and renew us and to lead us into all truth and to empower us as his witnesses to be agents of God's presence of renewal in the world. To prophesy and dream dreams and proclaim his gospel of salvation unto the ends of the earth. And, and what I find most fascinating about Joel's call to repentance and renewal is that it isn't some individualistic thing either. It's a communal thing. Right? He calls the elderly and the children and even the infants, the newly married, the, the priests and the slaves, men and women, everyone, everyone, the whole congregation, he calls. He calls them to gather together and repent. To repent as a whole, as a community. I often hear from people that there's this, there's this desire and, and there's this, this, this hunger for revival and for, this move, for a move of the Spirit. Awesome. Awesome, that's great. Keep hungering and thirsting for that. But historically speaking, every single revival, including the the recent one at Asbury University, occurred when the whole community of people were willing to gather together as a whole in humble repentance and prayer, confessing their sins to one another and repenting and contending for the community, not just for themselves. If we want to see the Spirit move This is where it begins. This is what the disciples were doing before the Spirit came upon them at Pentecost. Right? They were praying and contending and waiting on the Lord. And furthermore, we learn as well that repentance isn't a one-time event either. No, it's a a committed and continual posture of obedience. Peter enhances this thought when he writes in, in 2 Peter 3, 10 to 14, he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of Holiness? And godliness. Waiting for and hastening the coming, of the coming of the day of God. Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. And the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot Or blemish and at peace. In other words, again, repentance isn't this one time apology. It's a promise to continue to turn toward the Lord, to walk in the way of Christ, to walk in the power of His Spirit, to live a humble and obedient life of holiness and godliness, and to be diligent to be found by Him without blemish on the day of the Lord. Again, it's this this posture of surrender before Jesus which positions us to receive his grace and peace and to walk in it and experience it in our lives even now through the power of the Holy Spirit and then to extend it to others until Jesus comes again. Repentance is the precursor to walking in relationship to the Lord and to receiving and enjoying the necessities of life that come from him the grain, the wine, and the oil. It's a free gift for those who turn and wait upon him. So let's do this. Let's take this time right now to respond, to rend our hearts, and to bow before the Lord in repentance.